You're listening to a curated podcast from the Beyond Infinity radio program broadcast live on Tuesdays from 11am from our Mornington studios in Victoria, Australia. Presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. Now let's get stuck into our science and technology news for the week. We mentioned last week in the news that uh, there was going to be a launch. It was delayed a little bit. It was a SpaceX Falcon 9 launch of the TESS spacecraft, which is a planet-hunting spacecraft dedicated to finding exoplanets, planets beyond our solar system, but in our region of space. Mm -hmm. So instead of having a very large camera on board, which can look a long distance, this has got, uh, I think, four smaller cameras. Mm -hmm. But there are advantages to that. They can look at a bigger area of the sky than Kepler did. So Kepler stared at at a small section, still found lots of exoplanets. Mm -hmm. TESS is going to look at a a, a larger area, but of closer stars. It's it's quite a low-budget mission. I think it's only uh, $200 million. Drop in the ocean, Well, as far as... As far as spacecraft are concerned, it's not a lot of money. So it was successfully launched last week on board of Falcon 9. The Falcon 9, uh, the, the first stage, successfully landed on the barge. Mm-hmm. Of course, I still love you. Yes. So that all works, seems to be working better and better and better and more and more reliable. So fantastic news there. And also good news, the spacecraft is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's bound for a lunar resonant orbit. This is actually the first time a spacecraft's been put into this kind of orbit. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to orbit the moon and take advantage of uh, its position around the moon. The dark side uh, of the moon. To, yeah. to have a look out and find exoplanets. And then when it comes in on this sort of looping elliptical orbit, gets close to the Earth, that's when it sends its data down. So one of the, oh, one yes. of the issues with spacecraft is if you're a long way away, it takes longer to get the data back to Earth. In the case of TESS, it's going to actually loop back. And when it's close to the Earth, it'll send its data back. So it's not going to do a figure eight, is it? It's, it's just going to go completely elliptical around. No, it's an elliptical. We can post a link with this story. You'll find it in, in the show notes for the program. It does actually show the the orbits. I don't think they're they're not looping. It's not a figure eight orbit. It varies from uh, being out at sort of well 350,000 kilometer that kind of distance to coming into about 100,000 kilometers and mm. that's when it's close yep. to the earth and that's when it sends its data back down 108,000 the closest it gets to the earth's surface and that's about three times the height of a geostationary orbit and then it goes out as far as 373,000 kilometers away from earth which is just inside the moon's orbit it's expected to be a t- it's a two-year mission at this stage but because of the stability of this orbit that it's going to be in it's hopefully going to find its way into over the next month that it's establishing that orbit they may do a mission extension as well it's a 13.7 day orbit that it does this special lunar resonant orbit and as mentioned it's going to be studying objects within 30 to 300 light years which are 30 to 100 times brighter than kepler's targets this is according to nasa if it's successful could well find its mission extended and let's hope just as kepler surprised everyone with just how many stars had planets around them Mm. tess is going to hopefully surprise with the amount of objects that it, it finds. Now, TESS stands for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Keep an eye out for that one. You'll find a mission page if you just do a, a search on NASA for the TESS orbiter. Then you'll be able to find more information and imagery and stuff like that as it comes to hand. It gets posted. Just briefly on Facebook, we've been talking a lot about it. It has got a new data policy. And I was just reading about some of the details about how Facebook actually gathers information because, uh, as we know from, from recent news, Cambridge Analytica was implicated in actually sort of mining data and then selling this on to yeah, Through an people. external third-party app, which yep. connected through the Facebook servers yep. and was able to get the direct information from the user, but also information on that user's friends as well. Yep. It's highlighted the 
information that is gathered by Facebook and what Facebook does with this information. And I was just curious to know exactly how it does this. And a bit more details emerged recently. It gathers information about users from a mixture of the photos, videos, and thoughts you post on your timeline. It also gleans data from your interaction with Facebook friends, as well as the pages and posts that you like Mm -hmm. on Facebook. In addition to this, and this is where it gets slightly creepy, I thought, the company collects seven different kinds of information it takes from a phone, computer, or tablet that you're using. So whatever your device is, it gains information about that. Now, these include things like the version of software that you're running, how much life your battery has left in it, how much storage your device has left in it. It also can access information about devices that are connected to the same network that you're mm. on. You know, often when we're at home or at work or we're in a place where we're not moving around, we're not mobile, we tend to hook into Wi-Fi because mm-hmm. it's a cheaper way of getting data. Uh, Facebook benefits from this because it can actually find out about other people through you yes. using the same network. That was something that was a little bit of a surprise to me. This kind of information is often used for something industry experts called fingerprinting which is how websites identify you based on all the data they collect from your device. Tying those fingerprints to your Facebook account, if you've got one, can be a very powerful tool, allowing companies and advertisers to more easily identify you across the internet. So this is one of the things about the internet that people have wrong is that, and I was the same, you used to think of the internet as, as an anonymous thing where mm-hmm. you could kind of do stuff or you could say stuff, you could be someone in an anonymous way. But data miners, in combination with the big sites like Google and Facebook, it's not just Facebook that is involved in this, it's Google as well, just to name one, have found clever ways to identify you and your family and friends. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're anonymous on the internet is rubbish. You are not. And putting those notes up on Facebook, uh, I don't know if you've seen those, but uh, saying that you do not authorise Facebook to take your data and, and use the data at their will, don't even bother with those messages. It's useless. They have all the data they need on you and writing those kind of messages is not going to make any difference whatsoever. Well, apparently you can adjust your settings to change how much your profile is public and how much you share with the third-party apps as well as other settings but when it comes to data policy you don't have much of a choice you have to take it or leave it yeah. that's the deal when you go yes to that enormous terms and conditions page that comes up as you're registering to use something like facebook you are accepting a lot of stuff which not all of which you may be completely happy about just moving on with the news last saturday the 22nd of april was earth day and a reminder to all of us of the massive problem of plastic pollution in our oceans and we have actually mentioned this on the program a while ago but it's been found that this beautiful world heritage listed island it's about halfway between chile and new zealand out in the middle of the pacific ocean called henderson island actually has the highest concentration of plastic pollution of anywhere in the world this is an uninhabited world heritage island but because of ocean currents where it is it is estimated to have 37.7 million items of debris washed up on its otherwise pristine shores, which works out to be about 671 items per square metre. And these together weigh about 19.4 tonnes. Now, one of the scariest things that came out of my reading on this subject was that the 17.6 metres of plastic debris on Henderson Island accounted for just 1.98 seconds worth of the current annual global production of plastic. Yeah. So you can imagine that this is this is not a thing that's going to go away, unfortunately, well, unless there's some serious policy reversals. I know that supermarket chains and delis and shops and stuff are starting to get behind the idea of not having plastic bags. Mm-hmm. I was in South Australia recently. There, if you want to have a plastic bag at a supermarket, you've got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, supermarkets are encouraging you to do that. 
The problem we have also is that uh, China has stopped taking a lot of our recyclables. So yep. what we put into our blue lid bin, our recycled bin, used to be taken across to China in containers and therefore it'd be reprocessed. Those contracts have stopped. China has basically said, no, we've got enough. We're going to reprocess our own stuff. And so you take care of your own, which means a lot of the waste that we have, recyclables, is actually ending up now in a landfill. It's not being recycled, which is a huge problem. Yep. But there could be a potential solution for at least some small part of this. So mm-hmm. back in 2016, in Japan, there was um, some researchers found a, an enzyme that had been eating some of the plastic, the PET, the PET bottles right. over there. Hmm. An international team had then tweaked that enzyme a little bit just to see how it evolved. What they found was that they'd actually made it even better at breaking down these PET plastic bottles, right. uh, soft drink bottles. Hmm. So that meant that uh, you know what would potentially take uh, centuries, certainly in the oceans, to break down, could begin breaking down in as little as a day. It is about sort of heating up the bottles to get them softer and then putting this enzyme in to try to consume it. And the aim is to break it into its core components to then reuse those into brand new bottles as well. It's early days yet, Mm. very, very early days. Mm. The problem would be then what happens if this enzyme escapes and then starts eating other plastics, which are... Plastics you want. You want. (laughs) Mm. I think it's one of those scenarios where it's going to be sort of controlled environment, throw it into a dumpster and the enzyme eats that and then break it down from there. Oh, that sounds like a potentially... a great thing you just need to keep in mind you know if you're thinking about what you're going to do with plastic and if you've got a choice to try to not use plastic then that's a good thing to do because plastic that winds up in the oceans a lot of it doesn't just float around and wash up onto shores Mm. it breaks down into microscopic particles Mm. gets consumed by fish we eat the fish it's into us and it's toxic there's a reason just as from a human health point of view to try to limit plastic consumption and thereby hopefully limit uh, production of it neanderthals and homo sapiens have been around for the last they reckon about two hundred thousand years Mm -hmm. Uh, But one thing that they've found from looking at the fossil record is, and this is really, I thought, amazing, is that larger mammals that used to be very prevalent prior to 200,000 years ago show a sudden decline. And this can be correlated to the spread, the migration of people Mm -hmm. out of Africa. Mm -hmm. So the, the suggestion is basically that humans hunted all the large animals, so think of woolly mammoths. Yep. Uh, in Australia, there were uh, megafauna, like mm-hmm. giant wombats, that sort of thing, giant kangaroos, mm-hmm. giant saber-toothed tigers. These have all been in sharp decline, and the declines correlate with the migration of humans out of Africa. They've checked to see whether the uh, decline of these animals might have been driven by other factors like climate change, change yep. and they've ruled that out. Mm-hmm. They've said that that would actually apply to smaller animals as well, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. There is a correlation between humans and the hunting and consumption of these big animals. Because I think you were saying before, it's easier to hunt one large animal than, you know, say, uh, you know, a dozen or hundreds of small animals yep. for the, you know, to feed a, a village. Absolutely. If you catch one giant mammoth, you've fed a village instead of catching a rabbit where you might feed one or two people. Yeah. The other thing about them I assume is that if you're really big you don't have that much speed yeah. so it's probably easier to hunt mm-hmm. those large animals. Now I guess the concern is that if we continue down this path and the trend continues mm-hmm. then you could wind up with no large mammals left on earth and that has lots of uh, implications for biodiversity on the planet. Mm. You're upsetting balances, natural balances that have taken a long time to evolve and mm-hmm. to establish themselves and it could even get to the point down the track in the next 200 years or so where a large mammal like a cow 
ceases to exist. Yeah, right. And that has implications for not only for, for pasture management and the types of farms that we have, but also the types of diets that we, yes. we have as well. So a bit of a concern there. The spread of humans around the world seems to correlate very closely with the decline of large animals. Now, John, a quick reminder in the news, Google Gmail, there was a bit of a hack over the weekend. I forwarded an email that I'd got, which looked it looked like I'd sent it to myself. And yeah. you'd heard a bit about this. Well, I was started to get the emails myself. So Sunday morning, I wake up and I received an email and was advertising something to do with Bitcoin. Mm. And I thought, well, this is a bit odd because I could see straight away that it was a scam. And it, mm. it actually, from the sender, it was from me yeah but uh, it was actually sent to about a dozen different emails i'd never seen these emails before it wasn't yep. my friend circle it was just random emails yep. then they just kept coming in i reckon within about 20 minutes i received three or four right and then you emailed me and you said oh is, is this a scam should i be concerned should yep. i reset my password mm. and i realized well hang on a sec it's not just me it's also you mm. and i then looked on twitter and i found that was quite a number of people that had the same issue right now it does appear that it was only at this stage from my understanding only people that are using the at gmail extension so i have multiple email addresses my business email address is actually via the gmail system but it doesn't end with at gmail.com right and i wasn't getting any of the sort of spam happening from there okay, so, so it does targeting that domain that free at gmail account hmm. and what the suggestion was is that there was some of the scammers, spammers, they had found a loophole in Google's system mm. and they were, they were abusing that. They were able to sort of spoof the sender and make it look like it had come from your own email address mm. where in actual fact it's come from some farm overseas. There was some suggestion that was to do with a Canadian telecom agency called TELUS, I think it was. They're saying well, it's nothing to do with us. We've not been involved. Uh, but there was a lot of indicators that were saying it was going through their network. Right. It looks like it has been fixed because it did end up, you know, I think, late Sunday afternoon there was no more emails coming and you wonder how effective that would be because if you receive an email from yourself that you didn't send then you're going to be pretty sus about it immediately i I think yeah look their problem is because they send out so many there's There's a percentage small small percentage percentage that go for it and they're going to click on the link and they're going to enter some information and unfortunately some people may have their compromised details yeah yeah. and you either enter information or you've by clicking on that link you've uh, inadvertently downloaded some malware into your computer so anyway worth being wary of that do not click on uh, on links in unsolicited emails even if they are from yourself but one thing you should do especially in google is um when you receive these mm. you have the option to select report spam yep and it is really handy helpful for google yep. when you do that because it identifies an issue the widespread problem so yep. hit report spam and then it will send the response back to google and then hopefully that pings them and says okay we need to fix this right away yep. yeah i mean if you have a look in your spam folder it's all full of all sorts of stuff that you don't normally see well, and that's one of the great it. things about about gmail is it does filter out a lot of stuff that you don't want to know about exactly mm. now i uh, just want to quickly mention now with tomorrow uh, being Anzac Day, so April 25th tomorrow, if you're getting up early to go to one of the services, hmm. it might pay to get up even a little bit earlier. So around about the 4am mark, that's Australian Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. Head outside, look to the northern skies for the Lyrid Meteor Shower. Okay. So Great. it's uh, the last of the last day of it. It's that on April 16th. We'll sort of finish up tomorrow. But if you're up early anyway, going to one of the services, look to the northern skies and you might be treated to a little bit of visual entertainment. They can yeah. be great. If you're lucky, if you can find a dark place, you know, it's great. You know, lie on the bonnet of your car somewhere dark outside Melbourne, outside the big smoke, wherever you happen to be. If you get lucky, you can see these surges. It's like sort of fireworks through the sky. Mm. Fantastic. Moving right along, Coview, which is um, basically born out of CSIRO's Data61, has raised some venture capital to uh, actually increase their service. Now, basically what uh, Coview does is it has provided or allowed 1,100 healthcare professionals, including physiotherapists, speech pathologists,
psychologists, occupational therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, and general practitioners to uh, communicate with their patients via a cloud-based video consultation platform. So, you know, we've talked uh, before about uh, Ready Health and communicating online. Telstra's Ready Care, yep. yep. And this is a system that has actually been working and has been in play since around about 2015 when it was originally founded. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's connected more than 20,000 patients, but it's it's now raised over a million dollars, and that's to essentially expand it from the 1,100 clinicians to more than 7,000 by the end of the year. So wow. this hopefully uh, we start to see more of this. What it means is people that have difficulty because of distance or disability, unable to drive for whatever reason, they have potentially have access to this system to gain insightful analysis into their health conditions from the comfort of their own home. Right. The beauty is that it doesn't require too much bandwidth. It doesn't, you know, your internet speed doesn't need to be ridiculously high. Mm-hmm. You can do some tests on your line. If you follow the instructions on covio.com, which will C-O-V-I-U.com, there's some more instructions there. And maybe ask your doctor and see if they're signing up to the service or have access to it. Uh, and it's probably more around the sort of the 2019 mark that they'll be gaining access to this. Okay, cool. And uh, potentially found the world's smallest gold mine or tiniest gold mine. Yeah, this is great. Now, e-waste is a big problem. So mm. this e-waste is your computers, is your phone, your tablets. Mm. Once they've hit the end of their life cycle, mm. what are you doing with these? Mm. And um, some dangerous metals and heavy metals and ex- rare earth elements, all sorts of stuff in there. Exactly. Now, a company over in Albuquerque in the US called Sandia National Laboratories mm. are actually taking some of this e-waste, particularly SIM cards from phones, mm. and they're putting it into water and then hitting it with ultrasonic waves. And by doing that, they're stripping the gold off of these uh, SIM cards. Now, SIM cards are quite small. So we're talking a small amount of gold. That's why it is claiming to be the, the tiniest gold mine. Mm. But they're able to take this off. There is gold as a part of that that's actually needed. And then they can uh, reprocess that. I think they're sending it back to Japan for reprocessing and then reuse into it's other ways. a great e-waste. idea because so. e-waste is a serious issue. And also to be able to get something valuable, which has got can use gold for a whole lot of things, exactly. um, out of it is a great byproduct to well, get. In 2016 alone, Australia generated 570,000 tonnes of e-waste. It's unbelievable. And I think there's like one and a half billion phones made last year around yeah. the world. So, so that's it, a lot of e-waste. When your phone has died, when you've upgraded and changed to a new one, don't just throw it straight in the bin. It's uh, See no. if you can take it back to a recycling facility to get it ready. And I know Melbourne Zoo, just for people who are sort of local to where we are in Mornington, if you're listening out there, then you can. And I think there's probably other zoos around the world or certainly in Australia that do the similar thing. But they, they've got little plastic bags that you can put your, yes. your old phones into mm-hmm. and you can send them. I think there might even be replied paid postage on them. Mm-hmm. And you get all your old phones, put them in this plastic bag and they go off and they actually manage the, the disposal process yeah. in, a, in a sensible way. Don't send it to landfill. No. Make sure we can reuse as much yeah. as possible. Yep. And just finally from me, if you like games on your phone and you would also like to learn how to code, then this could be an app just for you. Mm. This is Google's own app that they've brought out to help people learning JavaScript. Now, the app is called Grasshopper and it's designed to teach adults the basic principles of coding. So I downloaded this a week ago mm. and it's designed for people that are really short on time. I mean, that's probably one of the, the biggest problems in learning code is not necessarily that code's difficult. It's There's simple parts of coding, but it's actually dedicating the time to it. So what this game does is it, it it's when you're waiting in a line, if 
you're, you know, you're waiting for your coffee to be made, you just open the game and you're given a really simple set of instructions. Mm. You give an example and then you actually have a test environment where you can add in, okay, well, I think it's this. And then you hit play or go. And if it works, then you're, you're rewarded with points and you then work up through the system. It's certainly worth it. It is available both on uh, obviously Android and it's also on iOS. Yep. So recommend downloading that as soon as you can if you'd like to learn how to code. Now, one caveat is that it does require Google login. So you yep. would need to have a Google account. To Which if you've got Gmail, that, that'll suffice. Or yep. if you've got a YouTube account or whatever, that'll all, that'll get you into the same thing. So that's just the one thing they do. And probably, I don't know, to garner a little bit of extra information about you to, to cover the cost of giving you a free app which teaches Possibly. you how to code. That uh, app was called Grasshopper and we'll have links in the show notes. Okay, thanks very much, John. Thanks for listening. And head to beyondinfinity.com.au for the best bits from the live show or to connect with us on social media. We welcome your feedback and suggestion for future shows.